0: Welcome to the Pulse of the Prairies podcast brought to you by Saskatchewan Pulse Growers. This podcast tackles important Pulse topics including market opportunities for your crop, market access and trade policy developments, innovative agronomic approaches, transportation for Canadian crops, and a whole lot more. My name is Allison Fletcher and I'm a research project manager with Saskatchewan Pulse Growers. Our guest today is Chris Holdupfell, Research Manager with the Indian Head Agricultural Research Foundation. Chris recently completed a research project that focused on enhanced fertilizer management to optimize yield and protein in field peas. Thank you for joining us today, Chris.
1: Oh, thank you for having me.
0: Sure. So I wanted to dive right in on your recently completed research. And we know that increasing yield is always attractive to growers and higher protein content appeals to processors and buyers. So can you elaborate on how both of those aspects may be connected to fertility?
1: Sure, yeah. I guess um, you know if we go into yields first, uh, the, the appeal of higher yields to farmers is, is pretty obvious. I mean, farmers make a living by, by growing grain and, and then in turn selling that grain. There's a, a lot of intricacies to, to each of those things, both the growing and the selling. That is, I guess, beyond the scope of our discussion. But ultimately, higher yields mean having more grain to sell, which at any given price, and all other factors being equal, means more revenues, which is always a good thing. Uh, managing cost, achieve that yield in a profitable manner can can certainly be a whole other matter. But fertility, I guess, is unique in that it's one of relatively few inputs that that actually help us build yield, as opposed to simply protecting or maintaining it. Um, you know, if we think of other common products, like like our crop protection products, say seed treatments or herbicides or fungicides, none of these things actually really build yield. Uh, but what they do is they they help protect you From losing yield due to pests or other environmental stresses, where fertility is, is one that can actually build yield. I suppose, uh, you know, if we want to single something out, uh, seed is probably the, the most important input for building yield. Without any seed, we, we don't have a crop at all. But, but fertility, I would argue, is in most cases a, a close second. Um, you know, fertility doesn't have to come from synthetic fertilizer, which is what what our research really looked at. It can be from the soil itself through mineralization of organic matter, uh, mineral nutrients that are already in the soil. It could be manure or compost applications. But you know, for most of us, um, most of our soils are limiting in some key nutrients and. Synthetic fertilizers like urea, monoammonium phosphate, ammonium sulfate, things like that—they tend to be the most cost-effective way to provide those nutrients. Uh, you know, I guess just back to to backtrack a little bit. Uh, when it comes to building versus protecting yield, we could also look at other practices like harvesting at an appropriate crop stage or, or timing. You know, getting that crop before pod shatter can occur, or other yield losses, or also taking the time to. To set your combine properly. I mean, these aren't things that will actually build yield, but they certainly do make sure that you get as much yield, of, much of that yield as possible, into the bin so that you can, you can turn around and sell it. Uh, you know, I guess with, with this in mind, and just that uh, distinction between building versus protecting yields, and, and the fact that our soils are, are limiting in a lot of the real common nutrients that crops require, at least in larger quantities. We tend to see some of our, our biggest yield gains with fertilizer applications when compared to a lot of the other inputs or, or practices that we test. Uh, just to shift gears a little bit, I guess, and, and look at protein, this is an important quality parameter or component. It adds value to a lot of the crops we grow, whether that's due to uh, you know making them have higher feed value for livestock, better nutrition for, for human consumption or plant-based protein, Um, bread making quality for things like cereals, you know, protein, certainly important, but to tie that into fertility, protein is made up of amino acids. A key component of amino acids is, is nitrogen. So, so that tends to be the, you know, the big driver there, um, aside from nitrogen, you know, crop type genetics, things, these are all things that, that certainly do have an impact on protein environment is a, a huge one we'll often see you know bigger differences in protein levels from one location to the next or one year to the next then we will by comparing treatments whether those are fertility practices or anything else that we're testing but but of the things that we control really fertility tends to be a big one and, and nitrogen fertility more specifically you know I guess that's not something that we necessarily think of so much with field peas because as a pulse crop they they can fix their own nitrogen so we're not usually applying much if any of it as a fertilizer or you know usually you get a little bit with some of our other products but it's still it's still driven to a large extent by nitrogen i I guess just another generalization that we often make with with crops and nitrogen and protein is that nitrogen that's supplied early uh, so through either fertilizer applied at seeding or maybe coming from the soil itself that will often contribute more to to yield specifically uh, and also protein protein's never never completely out of the picture but then nitrogen that we put down later um, tends to be contributing less to yield and often more so specifically to protein, you know, so with that in mind, sometimes there might be, might be potential to increase protein further with either slow release nitrogen formulations or in crop applications of, of nitrogen.
0: Sure. And I think you bring up a really good point, um, you know, highlighting that, that building yield versus protecting yield and distinguishing, you know, between practices that a grower might, uh, might implement in early in the growing season or even plan for ahead of season. That's a really unique way of thinking about it. Building on that, how does, how does that tie really into the objectives of the research project that you uh, did up for the last few years? And, and what were you hoping to discover uh, by doing that
1: research? Well, I guess our objectives going into the project were, I would say, quite simple, and that was just to evaluate field pea yield, of course, we always look at yield, that's important, and we've already discussed that, and protein response to different rates and combinations of phosphorus and sulfur fertilizer, and then more with the focus on protein we also wanted to look at some you know some different nitrogen management practices i guess uh, applied in different forms or at different times of the season in terms of how they could maybe further enhance yield again of course we're always looking at that but some of these really do tie a little bit more into protein nitrogen is the most limiting nutrient in most saskatchewan soils uh, but with that in mind being that pulses do fix their own nitrogen for the most part we didn't expect to to necessarily see a lot but our, our interest in this was primarily driven i suppose by uh, you know some of the unique practices the unique ways in which we could manage nitrogen and then of course our anticipation that we'd maybe see a little bit of a higher demand for high protein peas just in you know, when it comes to marketing opportunities and things like that phosphorus was certainly the nutrient that i think we we kind of went into this expecting to provide the, both the largest and the most consistent yield benefits Peas are quite large users of phosphorus, and most of our fields are, for the most part, considered deficient in phosphorus. I just looked up uh, some, a little research summary or a soil test summary from Agbuys going into this, and when they looked at Saskatchewan soils, basically it, it varied with the individual regions, the individual parts of the province, but they found that 50 to 90% of the samples that they tested from our province had less than 15 parts per million of Olsen peas, so that would be considered deficient. So you take into the fact that our soils do struggle to provide enough of this nutrient for crops and that peas are uh, relatively high users, especially if you, if coupled with high yields, that's one that we certainly expected to, to probably see our most consistent and you know i guess we figured that that would be the most important nutrient for pea production going into this project when it came to sulfur you know i wouldn't really say that i I, for me personally i didn't have a lot of expectations for this nutrient um, in terms of being a yield limiting factor or affecting protein necessarily for for pea production but we certainly felt that this was just a A good time to take a look at it, and and there were some good reasons for doing so. Um, You know, number one, there's very, very little publicly available information on field pea response to sulfur. I guess you know it just doesn't exist in the literature for whatever reason because people haven't necessarily found it to be a problem, so it's been less of a priority. Uh, You know, certain crops that maybe have garnered more research dollars or attention from from the institutions doing this work have seen a little bit more in sulfur fertility work, but for peas, it was it was very limiting. Um, so, I guess when we look at that, just this lack of, of information that's out there, particularly publicly available information. And then, the, you know, I just I, I think about how agriculture has evolved over the past 20, 30 years in Western Canada as a whole. And I think it really justified taking another look. Um, you know, some of the things I think of there are, uh, you know, we've gone from, if you go back to well before my time, but there was a time when it was fallow based rotations, wheat fallow, you know, a lot of resting time for the crops there. Yields were certainly a lot lower. Rotations were, were simply less diverse. I mean, in some cases, it might have just been a cereal crop coupled with, with fallow. This is going back a, a long ways, mind you. But the demand for sulfur really wasn't there, where now we're coming on 20, maybe even 30 years in some cases. It, it varies by the region, but of, of growers continuously cropping. So they're growing a crop every year. Our yields have increased steadily over this period. So we're drawing more sulfur from the soil we're growing a lot of canola. That's a big one. Canola is, you know, historically a crop that uses a lot of sulfur and and it's a a major part of, of a lot of growers crop rotations, you know, in some cases, almost more so than, than, than wheat Uh, that's getting into a whole other issue. But when, you know, when we think of all these things, more canola in the rotations, continuous cropping, bigger yields, you know, I guess I just look at all that and feel that there could be a lot more potential, than there was 20 or 30 years ago for sulfur to potentially be a limiting factor. So, you know, just something, I think that's, that's worth looking at it. You could almost say the same thing for, for micronutrients and and things like that as well. You know, and that's why I think that the responses tend to still be fairly ghostly is a term that I've heard Jeff Shano use and that they're hard to predict and they appear and disappear. But, but just with those same kind of factors in mind, you know, that's something where I think we always at least want to keep a, keep an ear to the ground and, and see if anything might be happening there
0: and it's interesting that you bring up you know that the sulfur and the lack of information because it certainly seems in the last uh, few years for sure that phosphorus has got a lot of attention yeah uh you know in, in the research community and, and just even any particular events and extension you know it's getting a lot of discussion which is good but it's, it's good to know that there's those conversations should maybe happen for for some of the other nutrients as well um just wondering if you could touch on then you know given that introduction and stuff what what were some of the major outcomes of the of the research that you found
1: sure well i guess we'll we'll start with the big one and that would be phosphorus you know i had mentioned earlier that this was kind of the one that i think we all had anticipated seen perhaps our most significant or consistent biggest results for and that was in fact the case Uh, so we soil tested all of our sites and 11 out of the 12 sites that we we ran these trials out of so six locations over a two-year period uh, they were low in P um, we had one location that had 25 parts per million so that was kind of our high P location but other than that they were all um, below 12 lower or equal to 12 parts per million in many cases below that and and even in some cases below five parts per million which is really really low in P and uh, when we looked at those low P sites, uh, the 11, we actually had significant yield increases with P fertilizer at eight of them. So, the vast majority of cases, we were getting responses to that P. Uh, the crop, you know, I guess when we just think about past research, published research, our own experience, crop responses to P fertilizer is often variable. And in this case here, it certainly wasn't perfect. We didn't always get that P response, even in cases where maybe the soil test results told us that we should. But it was a, you know, I would say, still a pretty consistent response low soil test p with that in mind you know the inconsistency I guess it didn't guarantee a yield response but it was certainly a good indicator that that probability of response was high and when we had high residual p we didn't actually get that response which is which is essentially what we expected you know in some of the cases where we did have low soil test p but we still didn't see that response I don't think that's necessarily so unusual I mean we're in in many cases, no-till soils, Western Canada is fairly fertile soils in the big scheme of things. You know, we do have organic matter out there and there's a lot of total P in a lot of the soils. So as that organic matter starts to mineralize, as, as things warm up and, and nutrients begin cycling, a lot of times the soil still does have a, a reasonable capacity to to supply nutrients over the growing season as a whole. So I don't necessarily find it completely unusual that even in the odd case where we we maybe do have really low soil test P that we don't necessarily see that response because it can just be a function of the environment. You know, and I I guess when we looked at all 12 site years there, so whether they were responsive or not, high versus low soil test P, we had an average yield increase that worked out to about 9%. Um, or six bushels per acre, which was a pretty substantial increase for a nutrient like phosphorus. And we had, if we only looked at the locations that were responsive, that average was about 13%, uh, which I, off the top of my head, I want to say about nine bushels per acre. And we actually had a couple of cases where our yield responses were 20 to 30%, so some really, really strong responses. Those were the minority, but the, the potential was there. And again, I had mentioned that our, our sole location where residual P was high um, at Outlook 2020, we didn't see that response at all, which is essentially what we we would expect. I should just touch on that. Um, you know, even if we do have soil test levels that probably indicate that you know the potential for P or response to P isn't great, or there's certainly no need to build soil test P i would still always recommend applying a little bit and that's just to make sure that it's not a limiting factor very early in the season you know when soils are still cool nutrient cycling hasn't really ramped up yet you know your mineralization of organic matter so having just a, a small amount of starter pea can still be beneficial regardless in my opinion i guess the other thing that was interesting about p when we averaged across all locations uh, we did have a small but significant impact on protein um, we didn't really expect this and i find it a little bit hard to explain but you know it really probably just attribute it to to healthier more extensive root systems which you know have greater potential to to form those symbiotic relationships with the with the rhizobial bacteria to to fix nitrogen just with those more extensive healthier root systems and also better able just to extract nutrients in general from the soil so that's about the the best way that i could try to explain that um, I think it's worth noting that some of the past research that i've looked at where they weren't necessarily focused on protein but did look at it they, they didn't necessarily find a relationship and in all fairness our gains were so small that i wouldn't uh, you know i wouldn't really weigh too heavily on them regardless it's just something that did actually pop out as as being statistically significant uh when we came to sulfur uh we found that responses were First, very rare. Uh, We had one location out of twelve, or one site year out of twelve site years, where we actually did see a significant response. And they were also difficult to predict. You know, they really didn't correlate very well with soil tests at all. In fact, the the single site year where we did have a response, it was substantial. It was actually almost ten percent increase in yield with that sulfur application. But the soil test showed some of the highest residual S levels of of all the sites that we looked at. So that's a That's a little bit difficult to explain. Uh, And then I did have other cases where we actually had really low soil test sulfur levels, but no yield response. So, you know, all I can say is that that they were rare and hard to predict. Um, And one thing about sulfur, it's, you you know, to a certain extent, I think you have to go with your gut or base it on past experience or, you know, just try to cover your bases to a certain extent and, and protect yourself because it is a difficult nutrient to test for. It's often very variable across the landscape. So you can have little pockets here and there in your field where you've got extremely high residual S levels. If you happen to hit one of those when you're out there sampling, so that can throw the whole thing out of whack, where all of a sudden you've got a soil test showing no, you know, no real likelihood of sulfur being limiting, but yet there it is. So it's um, it's something you just have to be aware of. Um, you know, I've heard it's commented before, and I, I tend to agree with this that if you have high residual sulfur, you may or may not have potential for a deficiency or, or need to apply S. If you have low residual sulfur, uh, you know, it's probably a fairly safe bet that you do in fact have have low levels throughout that field and and should be thinking about correcting it but in our case you know and and the previous literature that i have looked at they were they were certainly rare to to get those responses um there still are some some potential benefits to s fertilization which we can touch on later maybe and i should say that it had no impact on protein uh so nitrogen i had mentioned that you know even though nitrogen wasn't really a, a nutrient that we would normally recommend for peas or it certainly isn't a uh, generally a top priority when it comes to to pulse research or legume crop research but we were interested for a variety of reasons mostly to see if we could maybe increase protein with with some let's say more novel nitrogen management practices um, but we didn't see too much impact in either way for the vast majority of cases regardless of what form it was or or when we applied it uh, when we average across kind of the different forms and applications, and I'm ju- I'm talking about extra nitrogen over and above what we would already get with our, our 1152 or, or 210024 fertilizers, because a lot of our other products do provide a, a little bit of nitrogen, which can certainly benefit your peas. But the question is whether or not we need to, to go above and beyond that, which is kind of what we were doing with some of these treatments. And and, and really, we, you know, effects, I guess, were rare when they did occur. So, Uh, Just look at my notes here a little bit, but when we looked at yields, um, so extra nitrogen had no impact at eight out of 12 of the site years that we were working with. Uh, One of those places where there was an effect, it was marginally significant positive response. That was Swift Current 2020, if I remember correctly. And then we had three of the responsive sites where we actually had a negative impact on yield. So that's not looking real good for, for extra nitrogen. Uh, When we looked more closely at some of these sites, you know, a few things, I guess, came to mind. So first, uh, let's focus on the negative. There were three out of four of the responsive sites were actually a a negative response, not a positive response. So so one of those was Scott in 2019, and we actually saw that their, their best yields were just, you know, not applying any more nitrogen than what we already got with a little bit of a modest rate of phosphorus and a low rate of sulfur. But when we did apply that extra nitrogen, the worst thing that we could do was apply it as side-banded urea at the time of seeding, which would basically make it available very early in the season, you know, right off the bat. Probably had a negative impact on nodulation, and which you know, in turn, hurt the crop all season long. Uh, we had a lot less of an impact, but still no benefit if we either applied that nitrogen much later in the season. So, you know, we're talking just ahead of the start of flowering before that canopy really closed, you know, it probably would have been a late June application, mid to late June. Or if we used a slow release form, in this case here we were dealing with with ESN, which is a polymer coated urea, which you know has to basically stay in solution and have the soils warm up before it can diffuse out of that little plastic coating and and become available to the plant. So so we didn't have as much negative impact if we basically took measures to ensure that nitrogen didn't become available till a little bit later in the season. Uh, I should mention that that location, Scott 2019, they had not high organic matter, but it was moderate, you know, three and a half to 4%, pretty typical for the region. And, and certainly enough that it's going to, to pack some nutrients, I guess, in it in a total capacity, but it also had, I believe it was over 40 pounds per acre of residual nitrate in the soil. So not, not a, you know, extraordinarily high residual nitrate levels, but certainly not low. So when we coupled already reasonably high residual levels of nitrate, um, moderately high organic matter, and then threw down some extra nitrogen fertilizer with the drill, I think that was probably just enough that it, you know, the the plant wasn't wasn't liking that, and it had a negative impact. Um, when it came to positive sites, well, there was only one, and that was Swift Current 2020, if I remember correctly, and this was a location where Well, first, I guess just to backtrack a little bit, Swift Current is in the dry brown soil zone, uh, coarser textured soils, much lower organic matter, the lowest organic matter of all the sites we were working with. And that particular site here, they also had quite low residual nitrate, um, not extremely low, but it was below below 20 pounds per acre anyways. And so with that, uh, you know, it was just barely statistically significant, but we did tend to see just slightly higher yields with actually all of the... um, extra nitrogen applications the treatments but more so when we either did that in crop application or use the esn to to just push the availability back a little bit later in the season but you know the benefits were were still quite small i would say probably the economics would be would be marginal for for whether or not it made sense to do that but but that was the one kind of positive case i suppose uh when it came to protein i think we had might have been well, a comparable number of sites, really. I think where there was actually a response, but again, we had more negative responses than than positive responses. When we averaged all sites together, actually, and the different head management practices, our yields were about a bushel per acre lower with the extra nitrogen, and our protein came out identical. So, I guess you know when I look at all that. Uh, probably not going to recommend really any nitrogen beyond what you're going to get with just your normal rates of, of typical P&S fertilizer products, uh, unless you get into some real special circumstances.
0: And you've touched a little bit on, you know, some some of the uh, responses you saw at specific sites. And, and I think maybe just to hone in a bit more, you know, it highlighted that there was quite a few sites uh, in your project and So just wondering if you can um, just highlight for us who was involved, which sites, and why was it important to have those sites participating?
1: Sure, yeah. No, we had actually quite a few different sites involved. I just mentioned earlier that there were actually six locations and we ran this over uh, a two-year period. So I guess to focus on locations first, uh, you know, I would, if we take a step back and just look at field pea adaptation in Western Canada and Saskatchewan, uh, you know, it is the most widely adapted pulse crop. I mean, there's really pretty much corner to corner of the, the Canadian prairies, it is a pulse crop that's an option. So right from some of our higher organic matter, black soil zone locations to the very dry parts of Southwest Saskatchewan. So, uh, you know, these sites are, are very unique in their just inherent soil and, and weather characteristics. So uh, there's, I think, you know, it's certainly important to try to encompass some of that in our research. Uh, when we look at the specific locations where we ran this work, um, I'm based out of Indian Head with IHARF uh, we're in the thin black soil zone of kind of southeast Saskatchewan, I guess, not the extreme southeast, but we'd be considered thin black soil zone. Uh, we had a site down in Swift Current that was in collaboration with Wheatland Conservation Area. Um, and I had just kind of mentioned in passing that they're the dry brown soil zone. Uh, our coarsest soil texture, driest location. In most cases, probably lowest yielding location, but that can really vary from year to year just depending on the specific weather we get. Uh, We had Outlook, which they do have the ability to irrigate at that location, but this wasn't an irrigation trial. This was dry land. That would be our probably second driest location under normal circumstances, their brown soil zone, Um, and it was managed by the Irrigation Crop Diversification Corporation. Uh, we had a site up at Scott, which is kind of the far northwest part of the province. It would be considered dark brown soil zone, typically a little bit lower soil pH than some of our other sites. Moderate organic matter, uh, you know, generally more precipitation and uh, less evaporation than perhaps Swift Current or or Outlook, but but a bit drier than Indian Head. Uh, then our final two sites were were Yorkton and Melfort. Um, Yorkton is is northeast of Indian head that would be considered the true black soil zone typically probably a little bit more more moisture than Indian head but they're pretty comparable these two locations and similar organic matter levels things like that and then finally we had Melford. Melfort is um, farther northeast and that's really getting into into the moist black soil zone really high organic matters you know in our locations here I think we had 10 to 12 percent soil organic matter up at Melfort uh, it would normally be the the coolest and the wettest of the locations and so that's important you know just that geographic diversity i suppose uh, across these locations just to to actually encompass that in our study so that it's so that it's relevant to producers in all of these regions as well and then the other factor i think that you look at is when it comes to crop responses to all kinds of the things that we do really you know they're not they're not the same every year so uh, responses can differ from year to year regardless of the location so just by repeating this over a, a two year period um, you know, even longer in some cases can be nice, but we have to kind of wrap things up and come to conclusions eventually in many cases. But, but I think that's really important. I suppose, you know, when we, when we combine both our, our time period, doing it over a two-year period across multiple locations, we can get a much better sense of how consistent our responses are, you know, both across space and from year to year. And that's, I think, really important uh, just for, you know, fertility research and all types of agronomic research really is ideal. The other thing that can happen, if if geography wasn't such an important thing, you know, I could run the same trial at Indian Head over a twelve year period and get some pretty nice robust results in doing so. But the problem is, is that it takes twelve years, and you know, people want to they want results before then. You know, by that point, we've kind of moved on to new issues, hopefully uh, to a certain extent. So, so I think just by you know, collaborating with lots of different groups, getting us all kind of in the field at the same time, running the same protocols, we're able to to generate meaningful results that allow us to actually make some reasonably confident recommendations in a in a manageable period of time.
0: Uh, and so, then moving to the results, like you uh, just sort of mentioned there, um, why why are the research results that you found here important to pulse growers?
1: Sure. Um, well. It, you know, I guess we did touch on just how fertility is one of a few inputs that actually builds yield, and you know why that's important, and how we, you know, we do get some pretty uh, of all the things that we we tend to test. Fertility tends to be one of the more important ones that we do get good return in our investments for, for the most part. Um, but you know, I suppose I feel that it's important for more reasons than that. Uh, I wouldn't consider it to be the most novel research. I mean, in certain ways, we're we're just testing. Rates of some fairly basic nutrients. Some of the nitrogen management practices. You know, maybe that's a little bit more novel, but that doesn't that doesn't take away from the importance of it. You know, I think it 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 really helped usher our knowledge base for field p response to to fertilizer management into modern times. You know, we had touched on earlier how a lot of the regionally relevant research that's been publicly available or published it's approaching twenty years of age or more. This doesn't make it any less valuable, but You know seeding and fertilization equipment has changed a lot over that time our yields have increased which we talked a little bit about earlier crop rotations have certainly changed uh, you know just with peas being an important part of many of these rotations for one canola being such a, a dominant crop you know these are things that that weren't actually the case 20 or 30 years ago so so that's changed in that sense um the other factor that doesn't necessarily apply to all growers, but certainly a, a majority of them in Saskatchewan, is is no-till. Um, you know, a lot of our fields have been continuously cropped, managed under no-till for, again, you know, twenty plus years. Of, I think at Indian Head here, we're we're rolling over thirty, in some of the fields that we're, we do some of our work. So, so that could really change the soil's ability to, I guess, cycle nutrients and 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 change how the crops respond to fertilizer applications. So. So that's certainly, you know, I guess with agriculture evolving in in so many ways, I I do feel like it's important to revisit some of these, basic as they may be, um, I would consider really fundamental issues from time to time. We might think we know a lot of the answers, but these responses can change over time. And even if they don't, I think just, you know, simply retesting with new varieties, new equipment, uh, exposing that information to new farmers, it it can just give kind of new generations, younger farmers, I think, confidence and in the recommendations that they're getting from, from industry, whether it's from consultants or, or things that they're looking up themselves and researching and, and give them more confidence in the decisions they make. Uh, in addition to that, I guess, you know, some of the updates to dietary guidelines, just overall increased demand for plant-based protein. I think that, you know, I'm not an expert in this, but I, I think that probably has a lot of grain buyers and end users looking more closely at protein than, even maybe imposing some minimum requirements for certain markets uh, like minimum protein levels for your peas. So going into this, we kind of speculated that growers might be looking at these new opportunities or new requirements and and wondering, well, what can I, what can I do on my farm to make sure that, you know, protein's not a limiting factor to make sure that I'm growing as as much protein as I I can out there. So we thought that this would be an opportunity to do that. And with experience with other crops, you know, we know that environment is critical. It's huge for protein. Genetics are important, you know, varieties differ in just their typical protein levels, I guess, or relative protein levels might be a better way to say that. But overall, um, you know, experience with other crops has really shown that nitrogen fertility is is kind of the the big driver of things that we can actually manage on our farm on a, on a year-to-year basis. So, so I guess we just kind of anticipated that... Uh, you know, there might be questions in, in coming years, uh, you know, as in now and and beyond here in terms of what can we do on our farms to, to make sure we're getting this protein. So I think we can provide some of those answers, even if we maybe don't have great solutions, you know, in terms of fertility recommendations anyways.
0: Sure. So to summarize sort of what you've you've touched on um, already in this discussion, just to highlight any key takeaways that producers uh, can can take away and, and directly start implementing on their own farms. Uh, do you have any anything like that?
1: Yeah, sure. Um, so I guess we'll we'll come back to phosphorus, the big one. We can we can start there. Uh, so I uh, talked a little bit about you know soil test results and how our response is correlated with results, and they weren't perfect by any means. Uh, we had some low soil test P locations where we did not necessarily see the response that we. We might have expected to see but overall we did pretty good uh, you know low soil test p certainly did tell us that there was a, a reasonably high probability of seeing a yield benefit to fertilization um, and i think equally importantly if not more importantly the other thing about soil tests is it can give you a you know a better sense of what your your longer term objectives for that land should be you know if you if you're looking at a field that you know is is very low in residual P, I think that's a, an indicator that maybe you need to start taking measures to correct that. So that which would essentially be at least applying enough P to, if not build levels, to make sure that you're not further depleting them. And maybe you do want to to take some investment and, and try to build up those levels, especially in years where maybe fertilizer is not going to cost you an arm and a leg. Which there could be, you know, that's something that can certainly vary year to year. But but by having that soil test information, I think. You need something to to base these decisions off of. So, uh, and even just knowing that our our levels are low, I think, gives you enough confidence to to suggest that you do need to be, you know, not only applying a little bit of a phosphorus, but applying enough of it to make sure that you're not further depleting. and And what that will ultimately do is, I guess, it just improves your your land's ability to provide, you know, phosphorus. Year over year and throughout the entire season, uh, and, and make sure that you're getting the best yields that you can achieve. If your soil test values are high, um, we know from our our research results here, and also from past published research, that the probability of a response to application in that year probably isn't real high. Uh, you know, it's we certainly don't need to be applying rates that you know meet or exceed removal rates if you're already sitting on very high residual levels. I would always still recommend um, at least a small amount of starter pea. You know, this is just to, to make sure that we have some of that nutrient available fairly early in the season. You know, while our soils can be pretty cold when we're seeding peas in Western Canada, there's not a lot of cycling happening. Um, movement, of, movement of phosphorus is always really slow, but even more so on, under cold conditions or dry conditions. So, you know, I think just even if you are looking at at residual levels of phosphorus that would suggest that you you don't need to be trying to build it. I, I think it's always important just to put a little bit down here just to make sure that you aren't losing yield, but your rates can be really small. It doesn't have to cost a lot of money in order to do that. And I guess uh, just to go back to our low P soils a little bit, we did find that, you know, the rates required to maintain, Phosphorus levels over the long term, uh, so you know that would be probably about point seven to 0.9 P two hundred five per bushel, or the old textbook values. There's some efforts I think underway to to revisit those numbers as well. But but interestingly enough, I guess in our low P soils, when we were getting responses to phosphorus, it's also those kind of rates that we needed to at least match removal with or match our application with what the crop was removing. Those were also giving us our higher yields. So you know it it not only helped prevent further soil depletion in the long term, it was also making us the most money essentially in the year of application. So so that's good news for farmers. Uh, for sulfur, I think it's hard to make a, a real general recommendation considering how rare our responses were and our inability to really do a good job of predicting whether they were likely to occur. But you know, I think there's probably worse places to spend money than a small amount of sulfur. Uh, they will help you ensure that deficiencies don't occur in certain areas of the field where maybe you've just got spatial variability that isn't properly accounted for in your soil test Um, depending on the source you know they also provide just that little bit of nitrogen which we we talked about in this this research and in this podcast Uh, you know we've i think we've concluded fairly confidently that we don't need to be going above and beyond with our nitrogen applications and, and putting down extra nitrogen but that doesn't mean that there isn't still a benefit to these really modest amounts that that come with some of our other products and and sulfur is certainly a, a good source of that. So, just applying a, a little bit to ensure that you know you don't have have deficiencies occurring in certain areas of the field, and give that little bit of nitrogen isn't necessarily a, a bad recommendation. If you're a grower who prefers elemental sulfur sources, and there's certainly some of them are out there. There's a lot of good products. That's also something to bear in mind um, if if that's your preferred form of fertilizer. I don't think you really want to be skipping years of application because it takes time to oxidize and really be truly plant available. So by going ahead and just applying a, a little bit of that sulfur every year, uh, you know I think you just basically ensure that it's going to be available in future years, regardless of the crop, and, and you're not going to run into trouble down the road because of, of skipping this application. So maybe even if we don't expect to see much benefit to the the field peas and the gear that we're using it uh, there still can be some some longer term benefits Uh, when it came to nitrogen here you know we we really didn't see any reason to to make a recommendation of applying more of this nutrient than we'd already get with our phosphorus and sulfur products like i had mentioned Uh, when we averaged across all sites years extra nitrogen fertilizer actually resulted in slightly not significantly but slightly lower yields and it had no impact on protein you know when we when we looked at our different strategies there Seemed like for the most part uh except maybe under very usual well in our study you know it, it was pretty much always the case where the worst thing we could do was was put that nitrogen down as as urea right at the time of seeding and have it available early in the season um, but there really wasn't much benefit to either the slow release or the in crop applications either which are just adding expense as well to production and you know i don't think uh nitrogen isn't something that we necessarily want to store in the field if it gets converted to nitrate you know that's not something that's necessarily going to be available for the long term there can be some environmental pitfalls of having high nitrate levels so just really not much reason to go there i suppose some of the possible exceptions because there is are some cases in the literature where we have seen benefits to nitrogen uh for one it's you know, small rates that would be required, but it's really only on your coarse-textured soils, very low in organic matter, very low in residual nitrate. Maybe you're not applying, um, you know, any ammonium sulfate or very low rates of phosphorus. So these are cases where you know your soil probably doesn't have much capacity to supply nitrogen, especially early on before fixation can kind of take over and supplying the plant what it needs. And, and there may be some benefit to, to making sure there's a little bit. A little bit down there under those circumstances. But again, I think they're probably pretty rare in, in most of our soils. Uh the other scenario, I suppose, that would at least come to mind, although it's not something I can say that I've really seen with firsthand experience, but that could be uh just to kind of keep it on the back of your mind as a as a rescue application. So if for some reason you have a, a nodulation failure and and the crop isn't going to be able to fix all the nitrogen that you need, um, experience with other crops, soybeans in particular, I guess, have shown that we we can't necessarily meet the yields that would be achieved, which is good nodulation in the first place by applying in-crop N or a rescue application of N, but we can certainly help mitigate those losses and, and do a lot better than if we were to do nothing at all. So, I guess in that, with that in mind, you know, as your as your crop's established, your canopy's getting closer to the point where it's going to start closing. If you're looking out at your field and see pale green areas or stunted growth, you know, dig up some plants, check nodulation, and if it looks like there could be a, a problem, maybe get you know some other opinions out there to have a look at things. But but it could be a, an option just to go ahead and and broadcast a little bit of nitrogen to help minimize, I suppose, the. Some losses are probably already inevitable if you're seeing that in your field, but you can, I think maybe reduce the harm. Like I said, not something I've seen with field peas, but we've had pretty good success with, with soybeans. Um, the other thing I suppose that comes to mind with nitrogen, uh, is not necessarily have anything to do with fertilizer applications, but inoculation um, that was beyond the scope of our project. We simply inoculated all of our treatments. You know, our, our intent was to have good nodulation across all treatments and not necessarily look at that, but you know, even if you are in a situation where maybe your, your fields have a really rich history of of field peas in production, you're, you're growing them one every four years, you know, depending on kind of what your crop rotation looks like. I don't think I would ever, you know, consider not applying an inoculant product um, just because it's so, so critical to achieving the best yields that you can. You know, we, we need to take advantage of that fixation process to, to grow high yielding peas and, and, you know, even to get the rotational benefits of this crop and everything else. But, most importantly, just to actually get the yields that, that you can that you should be able to achieve, so so I guess that's you know, and I've done research where we haven't necessarily seen too much response to inoculation in fields with a, with a strong history of field peas and lentils, but it's still not an input that I would ever skip uh, just because it's so important, and I don't think that cost is is high enough to to really ever justify the potential losses that could occur I think that's those are kind of the the big ones that I would draw from this um, placement we never really talked about that. So in our study, we actually sidebanded all of the fertilizer. And I guess that's something that, you know, for the most part, I would try to do. If you're using inoculant products, um, which we've already talked about, you should be. uh, You know, you don't necessarily want to have a lot of fertilizer in that seed row for that. It can maybe harm that inoculant and have a negative impact on undulation. But peas are also really sensitive to even, you know, fairly moderate rates of of seed placed fertilizer we haven't really seen the benefits to seed placement that we maybe do with with some crops you know even as a kind of pop-up or starter effect so so for the most part i would avoid it if it you know if logistically if that's just what makes sense for you to do uh, i don't necessarily see a lot of harm in, in say seed place in 20 pounds p205 or those are the current i'm not even sure what the current industry recommendations are but they'd be in around that ballpark so a small rate can be seed placed, but it certainly doesn't have to be. So um, I would try to protect that seed, protect that inoculant and, and, you know, have it in a sideband application it will work just fine. Maybe if you're in a, in a mid row banding unit, you know, I wouldn't want your, it's okay to have some P for building purposes, for long-term availability and for, you know, building up residual soil levels. But that might be a case where you certainly do want to have 10 to 20 pounds put in the seed row just to, to make sure that it's available early.
0: Great. Well, that's a lot of information. It's a lot of great, great information. I really want to thank you for sharing your research results and your expertise with us. For more information about Chris's P fertility research program and results, uh, there will be a research summary developed uh, in the near future and a webinar that has been recorded. And both those resources can be found on the SPG website under the resources tab at saspulse.com.
1: Um, yeah, if it's, uh, if it's not too late, just one last thing. Uh, I guess I would like to thank SAS Pulse growers for, for funding this research. I, they, they provide really the sole financial aid for it. And Of course, all the collaborators, everybody who, who helped, you know, look after field trials and, and help make it all happen. So it's a, certainly a, a group effort and, and it costs money to do so and a lot of work from a lot of different people. So thanks to, to everybody.
0: So thank you to everyone who's tuned into the podcast. Be sure to subscribe to the Pulse of the Prairies podcast on Spotify, iTunes, and the Google Play Store.